Jones. Good afternoon, Jeremiah. How are you doing today? Fantastic. Yeah, that's good. A little bit uh, starting to get a little cooler here. Not as hot as it used to be, so that that's nice. But yeah, we we were uh, talking last time uh, about the problem of trying to get your teams up and running, and uh, you know your your most senior resources uh, are often the ones that kind of end up most resistant to change. And you got to get those guys on board, a because they're going to be the ones who once they get everything going are going to be the ones who are going to be able to sort of pull the whole effort forward the fastest. And you know, B, because you can't have your senior resources sort of sitting on the sidelines if you're trying to go in a new direction. It's going to really, you know, fragment the whole team dynamic and make people yeah. really doubt what's going on. Yeah, and I think there are two pieces of seniority, right? One is is tenure, and the other is you know being looked to as a leader. And both of those types, right, come with um, you know others looking to them for for some amount of direction. Right or to set pace in some way, and if, if yeah. the senior people aren't the ones driving change, then you probably don't have a culture of of change. Yeah, like how how serious is is this change effort going to be if the the people who for other reasons have been deemed to be the senior persons uh, on the team yeah. are somehow not not engaged in it, right? Or or you know seem to be kind of hanging back or dragging their feet, something like that. So you definitely got to get those people on board. Otherwise, uh, the, the whole effort's going to look a little suspect. Well, that's the topic for today then, right? Overcoming fear of change. Yeah. I don't know if you've ever read this, but there's this this uh, guy, Edgar Sheen, who does a whole bunch of cultural stuff. And he like, you know, he talks a lot about this kind of stuff and, and I like reading him. And so he has a whole bunch of different aspects of this that that, you know, kind of roll around in my head a lot. And, and like one, one of which I, I think is really interesting is just like, you know, the types of fear that people can have when they're trying to adopt something. And like, if you understand where someone's coming from, that can really help a lot in trying to figure out how to get on their side, how to, how to sort of move things uh, in the direction that uh, you well, want to so go. Let's, so let's talk about that. So, so what types of fear are there around change? Yeah, he, he's got kind of like five listed, which are... The first one, which is, you know, really obvious is uh, the fear, uh, sort of a loss of power or loss of position. And, and you can see this all the time where someone who's like this expert C++ programmer or SQL programmer or, or Java programmer you know, doesn't really want to bring on these new technologies where their expertise just doesn't matter anymore, right? Like you might say, hey, we're going from SQL to MongoDB, right? And they're like, I don't know anything about MongoDB. What's my... What's my value at yeah. this point? If, you know, if I'm learning MongoDB from the, the guy who you just hired right out of college, what does that do for me? Um, well, that's a great point, right? That you've practiced and, and you have so much experience with, with one technology that it's, it's kind of scary to go down and be the new guy at something else. You want to be the, the expert. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, that actually reminds me when I was... Uh, I learned all this stuff about Microsoft uh, multi-threading, you know, you know, sort of sending signals back and forth and semaphores and stopping threads and, and starting threads and all this kind of stuff. And then eventually, you know, we kind of, we kind of got into containers and, you know, the, the Node.js async, uh, you know, message passing patterns and things like that. And all that, all that multi-threading work that I like studied so hard and like gotten really good at was just useless no one cared you know (laughs) they're like great i'm really glad you're good at this technology we don't want it anymore stop talking about 
So yeah, I remember in, uh, when C Sharp Four came out, it was like the Task Parallel library. That was that, that really changed around how you did threading. No, absolutely, yeah, yeah, and, and you know, Task Parallel library. It's it's a it's a small step from Task Parallel yep. to like uh, the async stuff, and you know, async stuff is you know much cleaner and nicer. But it it all sort of you know depends on this whole hey, you know what, you, you don't have to have all these, you know, huge programs with lots of threads thrashing around inside them. You can have these sort of microservices and you don't really yeah. need that many threads. Um, so, so, yeah, so but, you know. Was, uh, you said, fear of, like, loss of power or position. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, like, okay, so then sort of related to that, you can have, like, um, a fear of, like, incompetence, right? Fear, like, as you're moving from one area where you're really good at to something that you're not very good at, um, there's going to be a time when you suck at that. And, you know, as a manager of a team, you have to let your, you have to, you know, sort of let your team know that that period of sucking is is okay. (laughs) We're going to try to do this and uh, we expect it to not work really well the first time we do it, you know, that kind of thing. That's actually a great case for building a proof of concept of something, right? We're going to try it in new technology. We're going to try to build something just to learn it. And we intend to throw it away because we know we're going to be pretty crappy. There are going to be parts of it. There aren't going to be. Yeah, you, uh, you make you make good point. You made this point before <laughs> that, the, that the proof of concept is a really good idea. And you're right. It does, it does provide a good testbed for that thing where you can try out a new technology and say, hey, we're going to push it in this direction. And then after you see it all working, you're like, oh, you know what? Now that I see the results of this, I've ended up with a thousand tiny config files or I've ended up with some other aberration, which I don't really like. I got to think of a different way around it. So with a proof of concept, the, the nice thing about that, right, intending to throw it away is knowing that it doesn't have to be production grade, that you can have understood the technology or the domain in some new way and that there's no mm-hmm. consequence to, to it not going to production. Yeah, absolutely. And that and that actually kind of comes into that third fear, which is sort of a fear you have to you have to be productive. You know, if you are incompetent, there's going to be a punishment for that. Even if your manager says, hey, we all know you're experimenting, right? There's still sort of the overriding company imperative that you have to be, you know, you have to be pushing out product, you have to be pushing out features, you have to be crushing it all the time. You don't really have the time or the space to try anything new. If you are if you are attempting to get people to be moving to a, a new technology or a new idea or a new way of doing things, you have to give them the space to be able to go through that. Otherwise, they're if if the sort of the expectations for productivity are staying at a really high level, that's going to be a really good reason to not ever adopt a new tooling. You're like the only thing I'm productive on is the old tool. So I'm product right. So I'm the I'm the threading guy right now. Every everything is now async and and on a massive number of cores. But I'm the threading guy, right? So do yeah. I continue to push the team to do things my way because they're going to need me, or right? Why do, do I take this period of incompetence to try to figure it out on a new technology? And and that brings that brings up another one: your your personal identity. Like, what are the things that you're what are the things that you're good at? The things that people know you for, right? Are, are you the multi-threading guy? Are you the guy who's really good at massive SQL queries involving really complicated uh, SQL uh, features that no one else really knows, right? And you're the only one who can really get in the guts there. But you've, you've, I see from your face, you've, you've experienced this pain before. Oh, man. <laughs> I've had, I know people who, who continue to write, you know, hundreds of lines in, in SQL statements because doing anything in ORM or at a, at a higher level is, is just too inefficient. So we've got oh, absolutely. massive yeah, yeah. files that, that are 
so difficult to debug. Yeah, it's going to be way faster if we do it all inside a SQL query than if we do, you know, simple CRUD operations in SQL and then and then uh, at a higher level do something more complicated. So much, way too much of the world runs that way right now. A, a dangerous yeah. and shocking amount when you really get down to it. And and the amount of maintenance pain that happens as a result of that that is absolutely short term thinking in software development, right? Because <laughs> you're like, hey, I'm going to hit this. What is it? Um, premature optimization is the root of all evil. Yeah. Like I'm going to optimize the crap out of this particular query, and this is going to be super fast. Then, by the way, absolutely none of the rest of my program can change in any way because this data down at the bottom is locked into this particular style of doing things. The point there, right, is you know what are you optimizing for? Are you optimizing for that machine performance? Or are you optimizing for your ability to develop and scale this beyond maybe just you, right? Yeah, Maybe this right. is too big to fit in, you know, in, in memory, right, in your head. <laughs> There's that, and, that, and that's that sort of, you know, little uh, bit of negativity there in that, in that idea, which is, hey, you know what, there's a certain amount of job security to being the only person who can solve this particular problem. And, and that's, that's true, but of course, I, yeah, it's terrible for the company to have a guy sort of, you know, locking in uh, complexity for his own job security. But B, also like, for most people, that job security isn't fun after a couple of years. Like people want to do different things. And if you lock yourself into being that one thing, that one guy, you can do that thing. Good luck getting another part job in another part of the company. People are going to be like, I got to have you here. It also makes it harder, right? Maybe to, to leave and even take another job, right? At some point that skill set starts to become niche, right? Maybe when you're learning it, it's the hot thing, but 10, 15 years in the future, maybe your opportunities have dried up if that, that's the only thing that you've learned. So yeah, that, I mean, that that's that your identity, like you were saying, as, as a fear. Yeah, it does lock it in. And, and yeah, absolutely. Like, you know, people are really good at coming up with creative, a whole bunch of computer programming is about trying to figure out ways to compartmentalize com uh, complexity and push it away and sort of keep the keep the um, productivity moving forward, even in the face of nasty complexity. You know, Kubernetes is a great example of like this incredible complexity of trying to keep everything up and running. And people have come up with these really good solutions for keeping it manageable. Like, you know, you know something like Kubernetes would have been impossible to, to really do on your own in, you know, 1995 or something. And so like, you're going to be the guy who's like really good at the complexity where someone else is going to build a way around it, you know, sort of compartmentalize it away. So the rest of it, so everyone else can do something different. And so you're going to be sort of off on a, on an iceberg there. Yeah. So of the, uh, of the fears related to change, we've got, you said it was loss of power or position, fear of temporary incompetence, fear of, of punishment for being incompetent. And, and and loss of personal identity. Oh, and then there's another one, which is the um, like the group membership part. Often you don't want to be the one guy doing things, and everyone else in the team looks at you as some sort of like traitor or you know someone who's sort of going in an opposite direction from everyone else. Um, right. you know, if, if everyone's if everyone sort of has like a group identity wrapped up in a particular way of doing things, and then you start going off in a different direction, people are going to be like, well, you're you're ruining the team by, by doing this other thing. Maybe you're not, you know, part, you know, part of this group anymore. So. Oh, that's really interesting. So, and I've, I've actually seen that play out in a couple of scenarios, right? One where you've got a, a, a team of Java developers and somebody starts playing with node, right? That, that gets mm -hmm. pretty threatening for, for everybody else in the team. They say, Oh, we can do all those things with Java. You don't need that. 
why are you adding complication for the team? Yeah, uh, yeah, that can often, people are like, hey, we're trying to get a particular job done, and this guy over here is just sort of going off the reservation and trying out these new things that aren't really adding to like our ability to solve the problem. He's just just going rogue. I don't think, I mean, this isn't a time right now, but you know, back in you know the early 90s, there were, you know, well, you could be on the Microsoft side or the Linux side, but you know, you wouldn't you wouldn't go to the other side. That would be bad. You'd be sort of either a hippie or uh, you know a corporate student yeah. or something like that. So, yeah, it was a holy war back then. I mean, so so that that's a much stronger version of this kind of problem. I can't think of anything that is similar to that today, where people are. You know, that's all right. I was a, I was a VM VMS and AIX guy, so. Oh yeah. all. <laughs> Okay. Yeah, that's another that's another version of the same problem. Yeah, but that so that's that's actually kind of a stronger, a weirder problem because that's like a group problem rather than like the the others are individual things that you can sort of work on individual people and you can say, hey, you know what, these kind of things, like I see this problem, you know, you're going to have time to to get better at this. You don't have to, you know, be afraid that you're going to suck for a while. Everyone's going to suck. Um, or you can like give an example of yourself thrashing around being incompetent and being like, incompetence is okay. As long as we're moving forward, uh, you know, it's a learning experience. It's okay. But yeah, the, uh, the, the group one is tricky because you have to sort of get everyone on board if, if you begin to see that there's some sort of problem like that. Well, that one's particularly interesting, right? Because it starts to, to get to culture, right? There is certainly a culture within teams, just like there's a culture within departments and the organization or the enterprise more broadly. And the question is, is the culture of that team encouraging innovation, right? Encouraging some change? Or have you picked a certain path and you're optimized for that path and you don't want to take on risk, right? So is this yeah, the kind of absolutely. team that, that looks to push its boundaries and just improve over time? or they optimize for a certain thing and only want to do that one thing. Yeah, that kind of goes back to that, like, hey, can, is, it, is there going to be space to experiment, to try a, a, a new and different problem? Or is it sort of a, a culture that's focused on, you know, hitting certain production goals all the time? And so learning is, has to be something that happens at night or on the weekends at a time it's not really interrupting anyone else's uh, you know, production process. And that's a great point for leaders of, of teams like that, right? If you are optimized for production and you are always under the gun, how do you get to the point where maybe you start to look at newer or other technology or change to the point where you'll be able to, to exceed some of those targets? And that's really why people look at you know, technology change over time anyway, right? Because they're able to solve problems more efficiently than they had in the past. If you decided to lock in on assembly language and said, nothing's going to give us better performance than this. This is the only way to solve these problems. And 30 years later, that's, you know, still the, the thing. It means your, your problems are more and more constrained over time, right? You Just know, like that is, I, I know a guy that I rescued from a company where they wrote their own assembly language and they were like super excited about how fast it was. But oh my goodness, those guys were just terrified that they, they would never ever be able to get a job anywhere else. You know, you know, great, great for certain domains, but, and those have shrunk, well, they haven't grown over time with the rest of the computing capacity, right? There were always assembly programmers for certain optimized problems. And as we moved on to business applications and higher up the stack, right, we've invented this stack. You know, mm -hmm. you need to start optimizing for things other than just raw machine performance, right? You start to optimize for individual productivity and then for team and scaled productivity, 
yeah, people just can't comprehend if there's if they're down at the at the coalface with assembly language. I couldn't I couldn't come up with these complicated uh, object oriented strategy classes if I was trying to do something in assembly language. That would just be impossible. Yeah. <laughs> so um, the, same, the same thing applies at at different levels, right? The same thing happened with the next generation of languages like COBOL and Fortran. Nobody's writing scaled out systems in those types of languages. Yeah, the, the, the languages are sort of designed sort of for a particular kind of problem domain. And once they get good at that, then then it can be hard to, to change them to do something else. C Sharp and Java or C++ are you know obvious examples of the sort of the object-oriented and, and a really good way of doing object-oriented programming. But there, there are things that they're just not particularly good at, right? The, the sort of really simple, uh, you know, cut down, streamlined stuff that Node.js allows you to do, where just a they ton of had, stuff is assumed, right? Both of those uh, ecosystems had completely failed strategies for the web front end as well. Yeah, well, because they, they, they took that sort of heavy object-oriented style and were like, well, you're going to start from a blank piece of paper, and then you're going to build up all these like various pieces. And then, and, you know, Node.js came in and said, "Hey, we're going to be highly opinionated. We're going to just do all these things where we, all this stuff's already done for you. Don't think about it. It works. Just focus on getting the you know the business logic that's going to be the business differentiator in place. And that's why people like it. So that's a lot of fear around change. So what do we do about this, right? What are the what are strategies for dealing with this in teams? Yeah, I mean. You know, why do people want to change? Uh, they want to change because there's some, you know, massive negative happening, right? They're, there's a situation where they're not being productive. The business isn't being productive. They can see in the future that they're going to get Ubered by someone else and they're trying to sort of yeah. avoid getting Ubered, right? Um, so, so, like, they can see these problems and then they have this, but, you know, changing is unpleasant and it's got all these, it's got all these negatives related to it. So you really just have to change that dynamic. Right, you have to you have to make it so that the survival of the the team or the business is going to be more important than the problems related to learning. So you can do this by like making the anxiety around uh, getting this particular making this particular change, like like just really increasing the stress and being like, you guys really have to you have to get better, otherwise all these you know terrible things are going to happen. So I've always thought of that as as having an existential threat. People tend to pull together pretty pretty well and and define ways to make something happen if if the company's going to go out of business or if the team is not going to be there unless they get something done. Absolutely, but they probably will only do it once or twice. Like if they have an existential threat that's going to like they everyone has to 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 work all nighters in order to solve the problem. Yeah. You you can get one or two of those out of a group of people before they begin to really doubt management. Like what? Like how come we are constantly thrashing, <laughs> you know? Otherwise you're just fighting for your life all the time, which which gets exhausting, right? <laughs> right. Like hey, you know what? Like I I uh, COVID, right? Like, I totally understand. We got this, you know, huge crisis COVID hit. Uh, we we got to like really pull together to to get the company through this. People rally around that, right? Oh, hey, this competitor just released this crazy thing. And, and in order for us to compete, we really have to like meet them at the marketplace. Totally makes sense. The second or the third or the fourth time the competitors released a crazy thing and we really have to push really hard in order to like beat them, people start to say, hey, 
don't we need more people? Like, like, like if this is a regular problem, why are we the ones, you know, soldering the load? Like can't management figure out that we need more resources to solve this problem or can't management look far enough ahead to realize that this is going to be a problem? You know, one time you're, you're generally forgiven one or two times, but you can't do it all the time. That's for sure. Yeah. So, but yeah. Thanks so then the other, the other, the other thing you can do guys, is you can right? try to, you can, you can try to re reduce the, the, the concern about learning as much as possible. Right. Mm -hmm. So you can sort of focus instead of trying to strain people, stress people out to, to adopt new technologies or new uh, techniques, you can try to make it as friendly as possible. And that's kind of, you know, the, the Google, Facebook, uh, you know, Netflix way of, you know, Hey, this, we should keep this learning fun. And the, the whole company is a learning company and this is just part of the yeah. deal. So, okay. So, yeah. so two sides of that coin, right? One is having a reason and, and motivation for why something needs to happen, why we need to learn and change. And then the other side of that was making it easier to, to do that. Right? Yeah, absolutely. And you need both of them, right? You, you can't, you, you, if people don't have a motivation to change, they're not going to, they, they, they're going to want to try to con continue the way that they're going. Just because mm. they're, again, they're, they're, this is where they're most competent. This is where they're most productive. People like being competent and productive. All right. So, so in, in terms of that, that um, existential threat, right? The, the extrinsic motivation for change certainly varies by industry. And in some regulated industries, right, like if you work at a large insurance company or an insurance company focused on a certain state, they've probably been doing the same thing, mostly the same way for 50 plus years. Maybe oh, yeah. you don't have that sort of threat. In teams like we talked about, right, without that sort of threat and without people pushing for change, you're probably still writing massive SQL queries and continuing to do things that you've been doing in a certain way for, for 20 plus years. Yep, so absolutely. Like you said, important to make space for, for starting to, to learn and to drive innovation, right? So if you're in a very constrained group and you're a, you're a manager of that team, right, you need to find ways to carve out a little bit of resources to try new things. And, and that is kind of like, you know, it depends on where you are, right? If you're, if you're in a company, again, like let's say a massive insurance company that's sort of fairly well protected by regulations, you've established business model, you've established amount of productivity, you're not actually going to need to change that much. And the loss of productivity related to going through change and sort of change, you know, having a, a greater learning culture may not be worth it from a business st standpoint, right? Whereas if you're in a startup and you're, you know, you're, a, hey, I'm going to do electronic postage stamps or some other, you know, crazy startup idea, right? There is a huge premium on being able to read the market and change rapidly in order to fit what the market needs because whatever your startup idea is, you may find out after three to six months of sort of working on it that people want something significantly different than what you expected. And so like, you know, yeah. that kind of company, there's a huge premium on, on having a learning culture and having a sort of a learning, a team that's willing to sort of adopt new ideas. Yeah. And this is why and even like within startups. those larger, well-established companies, this gets back to like the, the classic Clayton Christensen disruption theory, right? Which is your, your costs are going to be particularly high and without really trying to greenfield and build everything from scratch and bare bones, you know, in the, the way that a new startup would, your uh, mm -hmm. your cost basis is going to be just too high, or opportunities aren't going to be large enough for you to try those sorts of things. And somebody will come in and, and undercut you for uh, kind of the low low segment of whatever market you're in. That I mean that that's a real problem, and 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 I 
I really do have a hard time understanding how to forecast for sort of a company that's sort of well protected by regulation or dominant in a particular market space, how, how you would correctly budget and forecast for the amount of change you would need in that particular in that particular type of environment. I mean, obviously, there are companies that are massive that are also really good at learning. But that, that's actually a rarity. That's one of the reasons people find those companies very interesting to, to look at and work on is they're like, wow, this is both a really successful company and really vibrant, which is a kind yeah. of a rare thing. The strategy that, that seems like it's worked best in those larger organizations is to carve out separate teams and separate resources or even a, a separate organization to drive that change and to build something new because just understanding that your processes and your structures don't allow for that. Even your, your budgeting process, right, may require ROI. And a certain amount of ROI, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Like, if this is only a five, $5,000 return at the end of the year, we, we can't spend this money. This is a ridiculous thing to spend money on, you know, compared to our flagship product. <laughs> you know? And that's a great, that's and, a great topic like, to talk about that. In, you know, at length. Sort of the time. internal, the internal competition team that's you know, kind of driving, driving change and innovation inside a company. Yeah. Well, even, even interestingly, right. Is that that creates some pressure on other teams, right? Be, that, that amount, some amount of that existential threat, because if some other team is trying new technology and is able to outperform compared to your team, that creates some oh, yeah. pressure. And some amount of competitive pressure can be a good thing. Absolutely. I don't think, you know, it, it's a rare company that says, well, hey, you know, we're, we're in a great position. Let's not change any of this. This is, this is going to be fine forever because uh, there's very few companies that are, <laughs> that are in that advantageous position. So, oh, another thing, like there's a, there's a trust element of this too, which is you're pushing this change on your team, you're, you're saying, hey, we're all going to go for this new idea. We're going to containerize. We're going to go microservices. We're going to try to change from a, an acid SQL, you know, backend to some sort of NoSQL backend, something like that, which is going to, you know, put us in a more agile position in the future. There has to be a, like a, an amount of trust from your team that this is actually something that's going to happen, right? And I think a lot of pushback that happens, uh, especially when th these things are starting out is, is a fairly natural uh, sort of self-preservation about, I don't want to, I don't want to be like running down this path and, and working on this particular thing and then just have it cut out from under me. Like, you know, you can do that by saying, Hey, this is understandably a proof of concept and we are going to work on this and we're going to give it our best effort in three months, six months from now, we're going to evaluate. And we honestly may run out of funding at that time because the evaluation doesn't work. But you have to you have to let people know that. And if a, a lot of times, I think uh, the the initial amount of pushback that like a group has or individual people have is a little bit more like I don't want to be the first mover on this particular thing. I want to make sure that this is a, a funded initiative before I really commit myself to it, because I'm going to be having to work one and a half, two times as hard as I normally work, and I'm going to go through all these problems. I'm going to not be productive. I'm going to look a little stupid uh, as I make mistakes. I don't want to be the going through that if it's not something that actually happens. So I think it's really important to develop trust with your team about what's involved, how long this process is going to go for, what, you know, yeah. what, what do you think the outcomes are? What are the possible negative outcomes? I mean, a real negative outcome that people worry about is if this sucks, someone might cut the entire team, the entire department out of the company. You got to sort of figure out a way to allay that fear. It certainly makes me think of uh... I, just some great material I think that Google put out a, a couple of years ago about psychological safety. How can you oh, make yeah. it safe for teams and, and more comfortable for some of these things to happen? And, and 
management and, and any sort of leadership, right, has a really important role in, in creating that psychological safety and helping people, like that one side of the coin, right, helping them ease into change and, and helping them come up with new ideas. Right? Try things. Yeah, that totally makes sense. So, so, like, you know, you have to do things like you have to give people, you know, formal training. You know, the, the, the company is putting their own, you know, dollars on the table to, to sort of move things in this particular direction. You know, we're going to make sure that people are, we think this is a valuable initiative, valuable enough that we think people should be trained in it. Give them space that they can actually do experiments in. Because again, like the proof of concept idea, there is going to be a certain amount of stuff that's going to look like trash from the future, but you need to do in order to sort of figure out how these pieces will fit together. And so you need that, you need that space. And again, if a company is not able to provide that kind of space for people, uh, both in terms of actual resources they can deal with and, and time to deal with it, maybe the company isn't serious in, in this particular initiative. What is the mother? Oh, you want to, uh, you, you want to not just provide sort of formal training for like one particular dude, but you want to be like, Hey, this whole group, that's all going to be working on this. They all need to be trained on this because this is, Again, this is a valuable initiative that we are trying to foster. So we need the entire group, not just not just you know one guy who's going to sort of be the prophet to push forward on this. So yeah, those are those are some things. Well, that's great, uh, Jen. Um, rewards, you know, some sort of changing. You know, you, you might need to change your sort of reward systems as well you know, to reward the the new efforts rather than uh, continuing with the old efforts. Uh, you know, however I, you promote people or recognize people. So, yeah. yeah. And this gets to a whole nother topic, right? Which is companies that talk about innovation, that talk about wanting these things and don't really practice. Don't walk the walk. Yeah. I, Cause it's, it's a, it's a real buzzwordy thing, right? Everybody wants to have an innovative company, an innovative team. It's, it's uh, what, what new hires want to want to join. So I, I don't know. I feel like, I feel like we kind of worked through this a, a bit. How do you, how do you feel about this? Well, I'd say uh, it's a learning experience and that can be scary. <laughs> <laughs> but I always kind of think about this, you know, as, as an S curve, like a classic sigmoid, right? Where, you know, things start off slow, they accelerate rapidly and then they kind of plateau. And, you know, that plateau is when you think you're an expert at something that it's very hard to drastically improve how good you are when you already know most of it. And the only thing to do at that point, right, is to jump onto a new curve and to start learning something new to be a beginner again and have a, you know, a fast rate of, of learning. It's, it's oh, hard once yeah. you're so good at something, you, you kind of, you know, fear having to learn something else because you haven't learned in a while. So really important to try to keep that going. And there is that feeling of like, as you were, as you were starting to really crush it on a particular new idea, Right. You're just like, wow, like all these doors are opening up. You know, I'm really able to do things I wasn't able to do before. And it takes a while to build up to that kind of accelerated state. But you know, on a particular, it's worth it once you get to that. So, yeah, definitely agree. All right. Well, great. Thanks. Well, this is a good conversation. I guess let's let's call it. Um, have, have a great afternoon, Vince. Thank you. Okay. Standard disclaimer here. The views, information, or opinions expressed are solely the views of the individuals involved and do not represent the views of any third party. Where guests appear, the views of those guests are solely their views and no one else accepts responsibility for them. 
We don't verify the accuracy of the information expressed and we are not responsible for this information. We assume no responsibility or liability for any errors or admissions in the content. The information is provided on an as-is basis with no guarantee of completeness, accuracy, usefulness, or timeliness. The information, opinions, and recommendations presented here are for general information only and any reliance on the information provided here is done at your own risk. This should not be considered professional advice. Thank you.